This is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I welcome back previous guest, Ricardo Manzotti, along with his friend and co-author, Tim Parks. We discuss their new book, Dialogues on Consciousness, in which the two discuss the nature of consciousness. Tim Parks, novelist, essayist, and translator, is the author of 19 works of fiction, including Europa, shortlisted for the Booker Award. He is a regular contributor to both the New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books. He currently lives in Italy, where he teaches literature and translation studies at IULM in Milan. Ricardo Manzotti is a philosopher, psychologist, and robotics engineer who has written more than 50 scientific papers and several books, among them The Spread Mind, Why Consciousness and the World Are One. The former Fulbright visiting scholar at MIT is now visiting professor at UAEU University. We had a great conversation. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Ricardo Manzotti and author Tim Parks. Starting here, you know, Ricardo, you reached back out. I'm really excited to have you, you know, back on the podcast. You know, we had a great conversation. I think it was pretty recent, maybe two or three, four months ago. We talked about Spread Mind. But now you guys have this new book coming out, The Dialogues. And so what I wanted to know is... You know, how did this come about? How did you guys come up with this idea to put this in a, in a book format? You know, Tim, maybe you could start off and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose I should say that as a novelist, I'm someone who's always been fascinated by, uh, you know, what's going on in the mind and so on. And, and one day about seven, eight years ago, I happened on a conference where, where this young man is talking very excitedly about, about uh, a completely different approach to consciousness and, and we become we become yeah. friends and start talking about it and we talked about it very hard for three or four years uh, it was a very fascinating period for me uh, because Ricardo has a, a, a very special background and a very special preparation and eventually I, I, I simply said to him you know look Ricardo um, these conversations are so fascinating. I think, you know, I think we could share them. So, uh, so really that's how it started. We just decided to give a lot of careful structure to the things that we were anyway talking about. Yeah, if I may okay. add one thing, yeah. I mean, in these uh, dialogues between uh, Tim and I, um, it, it is a, a thing that has always been fascinating for me was that uh, uh, Tim and I, come from two completely different uh, uh, perspectives. He's a novelist, he lives in a world of words, basically, while I personally live in a world of uh, much simpler uh, experiences, phenomenal experiences. And so it was right. fascinating to see how our two very different perspectives somehow uh, converge together um, in a very similar way. There are differences, mm -hmm. but uh, still they're surprisingly uh, similar, given that we start from two completely different uh, angles. Yeah, and I found it really interesting reading through the book. Uh, it almost felt like, uh, like reading a transcript of a podcast. You know, Tim asked really great questions and confronted you. You know, Ricardo on some of these things would say, wait a minute, you're losing me, or wait a minute, I'm not sure that makes sense, or I'm not totally into that. So it was really it's a lot of fun to read through, you know, your conversation. So I, I'm really glad you guys did it. Um, now I am curious, you know, obviously Ricardo, I think, uh, I don't know if you found me or I found you, but obviously 
consciousness is, is, is something that you're all about. So Tim, as a, as a novelist and a writer, you know, how did you come about becoming so curious about uh, consciousness? What was, what was the motivation behind that? Well, I suppose if you, the people who know my novels will know that, that a lot of the action is, is as it were in the head. Um, mm. uh, they're about people facing uh, crises, which, which you would normally call mental, mental crises, people on, on the edge of, uh, 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 of mental illness, you might say. So mm. the, the whole question of consciousness has always been very interesting to me. Uh, the question of how the more conscious, rather than conscious, perhaps simply how the mind's working. Uh, but then, uh, you know, I, I translated a book about about Eastern and particularly Vedic and pre-Vedic visions of how the mind works. So for me, when I when I came across Ricardo, or you know, when we when we just happened to get together, um, it was an extraordinary moment to start looking more carefully at, at things you know, that I'd thought about in the past. I was particularly uh, obsessed with the idea, you know, how does the word adhere to the mind, you know, because we get yeah. told that, you know, that this or that part of our brain is a seat of, of uh, linguistic performance. And, uh, you know, if this or that neuron is, is stimulated, then this or that word will emerge and so on. And, and yet you look in the brain and, and there are only neurons. So when I met Ricardo and, and heard his position, it, it was just an invitation to me to to start putting some structure to things that had perplexed me for a long time. And I might be jumping ahead on, on this question, but you piqued my curiosity. Um, and if, before I ask the question, Ricardo, I should say I apologize. Now that I hear Tim pronouncing your name so properly, I can hear that I am massacring the cause. <laughs> so I just don't know if I have it in me to do it. So I apologize for that. Um, Anyways, fine. <laughs> Okay, thank you. But so, Tim, I'm wondering, you know, as you talked to Ricardo about spread mind and, and mind object, did it give you a new perspective on your words, your sentences, your phrases as objects that are bringing consciousness to your readers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got so interested in this conversation precisely because it did give me a whole new sense of what was going on at every moment of perception and and in the question of, of of speaking and producing words, I began to be aware that that what I had always thought of as mental was in fact just another form of physical activity and that doing something like speaking or writing um, is not perhaps as different as deciding to walk somewhere or, or doing a dance. Um, that is, you begin you begin to stop thinking of things being stored in the brain and start thinking of having learned to do certain activities, which is rather different. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. <laughs> I hear your skepticism. No, no, I'm not. I'm actually thinking, I don't know if I mentioned it to you, Ricardo, last time, but I, I do uh, stand up comedy as a hobby. Oh, nice. And in a lot of things you do as a, as a comedian is you, you craft your setups in such a way that it causes uh, scripts to run in the minds of the audience members. And so that you can mess it all up and with a funny punchline. Right. And so I can see how 
it's almost another tool in, in the craft of a writer as you're thinking about the the objects that are are in this mind and conjuring them up and and what effect that has it adds almost like a whole complete new layer to being an author you know once you really start to understand you know spread mind which i can't say i I totally do but i can see it adding that whole new layer to your craft well yeah i don't i i don't know how much i want to add to that certainly almost any form of language uh takes you in a, a a particular direction, a sentence requires a particular structure. There are a whole load of sort of gambits in conversation and we know where they're going. So as a stand-up comedian, uh, you, you, you simply decide to slip in something completely different at a certain point and, and, and sort of shock people, wake them up. Certainly writers are thinking about that, that a lot. I don't know how much it would change my, my writing, but it's certainly made me more exciting about thinking about what's going on. Yeah, interesting. So Ricardo, with you, as you guys had these conversations, you know, as, you know, as I read through it, it was pretty familiar, you know, in terms of our last conversation, but, you know, through the, the very direct questions that Tim was asking in your conversations, did uh, any new revelations on, on Spread Mind or any new insights, any changes? To your theory and yes, your of course. I mean, working with Tim, uh, speaking with Tim uh, has been incredibly useful for me because Tim is a, a writer, a novelist, so he's able to see true words. So he was always able to see whether I was going, I was just building up a house of cards, or whether I was up to something that was down to earth. And he was uh, also uh, able to to has a kind of. Uh, um, detector for uh, any sentence that is not clear. You know, I come mm. from culture in the language where it is very easy to build a house of cards, where English is a lot more uh, down to earth, as I said. And, and so, uh, I mean, working with him has been super uh, useful for me because it helped me to be as close as possible to a core set of fundamental uh, notions. And so I've been able, in the end, to to reduce all of the uh, gen the, the original idea to a very um, um, small set of uh, uh, basic uh, ideas. And like, for example, the notion of the relative object and the, the notion, which is basically the, the one of the two fundamental ideas behind the spread mind, or the notion of the identity between our experience and the world. So he uh, obliged me to, 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 to be extremely clear. And, and that is something for which I'm very thankful to, to Tim. And another thing that I must uh, say that uh, I owe to Tim is the very name of the spread mind. I mean, he suggested the expression spread mind in one of these conversations. Oh. So I owe it to him. Oh, wonderful. That's awesome. That's a good... Good collaboration there. Well, I so, hope I'll be invited when he wins the Nobel, Stuart. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I, <laughs> that would be a great moment. <laughs> or, or, or maybe, maybe you in literature, and then you can invite uh, him. So well, we'll I see. Doubt that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into the to the meat of it then. So maybe kind of start off the the same way you guys started the book. Um, and defining or describing, you know, what, what is consciousness? I don't know which one of you wants to dive into that one. So what do you guys think 
you guys have, do you guys share opinions or, or ideas or do you disagree on a lot of this stuff? Um, I think, I think this whole conversation started with me as, as it were, skeptical disciple or possible disciple. Uh, uh, and Ricardo spending many hours and sending me back to read things and so on. So <laughs> gradually yeah. I, I, I very much come around to his position, but I, I disagree with him on some of the emphasis, for, for example, uh, the whole question of the role of the body and the body as a part of our experience, I, I somewhat disagree with, but, or, or at least okay. I feel he has the emphasis wrong, but these are not things probably that, that our listeners are going to get a grip on until we, until we tackle the, the main issue. So let me just say right away, the idea is essentially this, that we stop thinking of consciousness as an inner representation of an outer world. That is, we stop thinking of the idea of the world as somehow doubled up in our mind, somehow re repeated. And we, we reach the conclusion that because in our head there are only, although very interestingly, 85 billion neurons, uh, there are not colors, there are not objects, there are not words, there are not tunes in our heads. Since that is the case, the experience that, that, that what we call experience is uh, the world as as it meets our bodies. It is uh, our bodies come to the world and bring their equipment to the world and give the world an opportunity to be what it is, which is our experience. So that is, that is the core idea, the elimination of the idea of representation in, in the head. Yeah, if I may. So uh, is that where you, the, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ricardo. Said, yeah, uh, I mean, please. Uh, we are um, trying to debunk a myth modern myth. The modern myth is that we have a, a mental world inside our head. This is something that science is often suggesting, but it has completely no evidence about that. Nobody has ever found anything like our experience inside the head. And science, neuroscience in particular, keeps asking us to believe into the existence of something that is completely invisible to scientific uh, instrumentation that cannot be measured namely our conscious experience. And in order to justify that we cannot uh, measure or see through traditional means our inner world, our mental inner world, neuroscientists keep telling us that consciousness is invisible, that consciousness is phenomenal, where phenomenal simply means something that cannot be seen through scientific or other means. And this is really unbelievable to me. So we, we are, first, we are debunking this myth that there's an inner mental world. There isn't anything like that. And then we are suggesting where to look to, in order to find the very familiar world we experience every day, but not inside the head, but in the world itself, which seems so obvious when you start thinking about it, that you may be surprised that so many people are still looking inside the a, a invisible container that nobody has ever seen called the mind. Obvious, but not intuitive, which probably leads so many of us to have that myth. It, it, it's uh, like you said, that phenomenal feeling. It just feels like it's coming from inside 
one's head or, or some might even say from inside of one's heart. You, you have I, these, fe- these phenomenal feelings. Yeah, please, Tim. Can I say something about that? You, you say it's not intuitive, but if you were, for example, simply walking in the countryside and enjoying one of those periods where you are not talking to yourself, as it were, you are simply maybe just whistling, walking along. What do you have? You have a world uh, outside and you have, you have your whistling, which is a performance like, like you're walking. Okay, there is, there is no need to think of the whistling as, as it were in your, in your head. Um, when you say that, that intuitively we think of it in our head, we're basically thinking that our talking to ourselves without talking aloud is in our head. Uh, and I think that that's the thing that, that, one, that one grapples with and that presents a problem. And that when we start thinking of that as, as, as an action, uh, as a physical action, we know that our vocal cords all move when we talk to ourselves inside our head, that we're, we've simply learned to talk silently. Then, then, then it does get a little bit less difficult, I think, to, to start realizing that, that we're actually performing all the time in our thoughts rather than having a, a special mental world. What do you mean by we're performing our thoughts? Well, uh, we're talking now and each of us are performing in the sense of each of us are doing something. Let's just say we're doing phys- we're, there are physical actions, uh, which speaking, uh, walking, peeling potatoes, uh, thinking, and, and they are not, not actually so different from each other. When you get to the thinking part, though, it feels different. I think that's the part that maybe I was thinking that feels intuitive is the thoughts feel like they're emanating from inside my head. And when I see a mountain here in Arizona, I have a feeling of that mountain that feels like it's inside my head. Yeah, well, uh, I often ask this question to my uh, students during my classes. I ask them, Talk to me about your thoughts, about your inner thoughts. And they start to say, well, to, to, they reply something like, well, I'm thinking about my house, I'm thinking about my, where I live, about my car. And then I said to them, no, no, I didn't want you to uh, speak about y- your car, your, your building or whatever. I want you to speak only about your thoughts. And then they say, well, I am thinking of uh, my mom and thinking of my <laughs> siblings and thinking of my video games. And then I keep asking them, no, no, I don't want you to, uh, to talk with me about video games, moms and whatever, but just about your thoughts. And then they say to me, it's impossible because there isn't anything like a thought without uh, what the thought is about. So I'm asking them, then why don't you simply tell me that, you, that you're not that you're thinking about those things, but that those things are actually acting through you, through your body, and are producing a, a, an action of some kind through your body. So my point is that we have introduced historically, that historically we have introduced the notion of thought as something invisible that, that should be between previous events and our words. 
but do we really need them or are they just some kind of narrative about the narrative? So something that we introduce as an invisible um, character that nobody can ever see. And is that, is that related to, and I don't want to give your whole book away, so, but is that related to the pizza experiment where Tim was saying, I'm thinking about a pizza and you were saying, well, don't, not just the object of the pizza, but you know, what are some of the other thoughts surrounding that? That the, that the pizza is basically providing to you. Yeah, let me just say that, um, you know, this is, this is a classic of what it's like talking, talking to Ricardo because we're immediately very seriously, <laughs> very seriously challenged. Um, yeah. And, and, and a lot of the problem is a, is a linguistic problem. We say, for example, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about a pizza, okay. Um, what does this actually mean? Am I verbally thinking about a pizza saying, hmm, I'd like to go for a pizza? Am I seeing a pizza? Certainly not in the way I would see a pizza once I just ordered it and it's sitting steaming there on the plate. Okay, so there is something that's happened that, 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 that pizza has suddenly become, suddenly become present to me. Do we really need the word thinking? Or Ricardo might say to us, well, you know, you've eaten a lot of pizzas in your life. Um, uh, you've got a lot of neurons in your head. A lot of, a, a lot of experiences has, has happened. And these pizzas are still active upon you, okay? And, and there you are. You, you can use the word thinking as a, nice, as a nice shorthand, as a nice quick way of saying, you know, pizza, maybe, maybe we could go out this evening. But you don't really need to start thinking that there is uh, that there is a, a, a special kind of mental activity which is not physical um, and, and which is then mysterious and then which gives human beings a special feeling of pride because, because they live in a slightly different world. You don't need all of that. I think that's the position Ricardo's putting forward. Okay. That makes sense. You know, since, and since we're talking about these representations in our mind, um, I don't know if you'd be willing to, to talk about the red square and the white square experiments. You know, as I read through that, and I even did it myself, and I was amazed that I was seeing the color that I was seeing. You know, it's, uh, it's, if you'd asked me that, I, I never would have predicted that, um, along with the, the uh, swirl that you're looking at, those are the same colors. But I'm curious about the, the red square and the, the white square. When you concentrate on the red square and then you shift your focus to the white square, you see a, a color. And how does that relate to the object uh, working within my yeah. mind? Is that, yeah. is that an easy enough explanation? Yes, yeah, so, no, that's a great point. That, that's a case of after images that has been uh, systematically described in the wrong way in all, in, or at least in most of the uh, literature, both in neuroscience and in philosophy. And it has been described in the wrong way with the couple of colors, red and green, rather than actual couple of colors, which is red and cyan, which is a kind mm -hmm. of uh, blue-green, uh, quite different. Because uh, traditional neuroscientists and philosophers accepted the idea that colors are a kind of mental entity. So 
Once you accept that idea, basically any color may produce any other color. And uh, if you have a uh, color space in which green is the opponent of red, it makes sense that after watching a red square, you're going to see green squares everywhere, particularly against a gray square. However, this is not the case. As you tried and as people can try on our website, uh, after staring a red square, you're going to see a cyan square, cyan color. Now, the question is, why is that so important? Because the cyan can be explained differently from green, can be explained by suggesting that because your retina has changed during the time you spend watching the staring at the red square, your retina is now red blind. Because your retina is red blind, when you watch the gray square, which contains in equal measure both um, green, uh, red, and blue, because you're red blind, you're going to see the leftover, the chromatic leftover, which is a combination both of green and blue, which is cyan. So, this is a crucial experiment because it shows that by changing our body, the world around us is different because the world exists relative to our body. And so how can we see something different by changing our body? But is what we see something that is not real? No, it is just as real as everything else. It is just relative to our body that has changed. Yeah, can I offer... Because I'm aware, I'm aware that it's quite difficult. Can I try and offer a, a succinct, quick version of this? Uh, we all know that if you stare at, say, a red square, okay, and then move your eyes after you've looked at it for a certain amount of time, uh, so that your, your eyes are sort of soaked up in the red, you move your eyes to a neutral white or gray uh, square, and for a sh few short moments, you see another color. Okay. Now, this has always been taken as proof by people who think that everything's in your head, that since that we know that that square is white or gray, and instead we're seeing green, this means that colors, well, we're not seeing green, actually, we're seeing blue-green, that this means that colors are generated in the head. And what Ricardo has been able to demonstrate is that for every color that you look at and saturate your eyes with and then move your eyes to the white, you can predict what different color you will see by, by simply removing the, the original color from the white and you will see the leftover. So what he's suggested is that it's not inside the head, but that we are actually seeing for a moment uh, the color that's in there without, without the red. So the body has changed because for a moment it's been saturated with red and so we're a little blind to red for a moment, like when we look at the sun and the world's changed for a moment when we look elsewhere. So we bring a slightly different body to the white paper. We don't see the red in it and we only see the blue-green in it. That, that is the idea, basically. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. And it's also, as you say, you know, in the book about perspective that we all have our own unique experience based on objects inter interacting with us and within time. And so with this experiment, I'm looking from the red 
to the white square, somebody else may have been staring at a blue square, thus removing the blue. And when we both look, turn our eyes at the same time to that same square, we're, we're getting two different colors. For sure, Correct. for a moment. Yeah, interesting. Um, and so now I'd like to jump into another subject from the book, if you don't mind, something that's, uh, it was kind of shocking to me and it shook some foundations of my own personal philosophies is when you talk about, um, quote, the now, right? The, the present moment. And, and I kind of liked the back and forth that you guys had, because I feel like Tim, you're like, well, this isn't making sense to me, you know, explain this and, you know, some good examples from constellations and different things. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about um, dreams, uh, maybe hallucinations, thoughts in one's mind that are made up basically of experiences that one has already had with an object. But you're saying that when you feel that experience, it's not happening in, in, in time, that there is no now. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about what is, is there, an, if there's no now, is there no time? Is time something that was just uh, constructed from an, another object? So I don't know if you want to jump in and kind of talk about what does now mean and or not mean. Yeah. Well, well, let me try to to to, to say something about that. Then maybe Tim will uh, correct me. <laughs> not clear enough. Uh, no, I, I mean we always assume that there is a, a now which is the traditional Newtonian idea that there is a point like a moment which is uh, with almost no um, dimension, with almost no extension, and that everything takes place in that moment. But if we consider what's going on from a physical uh, perspective based on what Einstein ex um, discovered, there isn't anything like that for the simple reason that everything takes time. So when I watch uh, at, the, um, um, at the other side of the street, uh, what's going on at the other side of the street uh, is taking place sometime uh, before the activity in my brain. And uh, when I watch uh, at, the, at the TV screen, what's going on on the TV screen is also taking place sometime before what's going on inside my brain. And that's because everything, as I said before, takes time. So there isn't such a thing as a point in time where everything takes place. There are many points, and each of these points is separate, not only by space, but also by time. And that it is uh, quite uh, uh, straightforward in the case of the moon or the sun or stars. In that case, the time is pretty large. It can be really, I mean, it can be eight minutes for the sun, it can be even longer for stars. Does that mean that the sun is not in our now? Does that mean that the stars we see during a starry night are not in our night, in our now? Of course not. The, the idea is to spread also the notion of the now, in order to uh, over-encompass events that are producing an effect in our body, and that therefore events that are relative to our body, but uh, events that are also 
based on the Newtonian and um, old-fashioned notion of the now in the past. So the idea is that we have to spread the notion of the present. And once we do that, we include in that notion not only perception, but also other kinds of experience, such as memory, imagination, hallucination, and the like. Yeah. Oh. I, th I think it is worth actually repeating these things because I, because I think they are difficult. Mm. So, so what Ricardo's telling us then is that in any experience, there is a time distance or there is simply, there is simply movement between us and any object. And that, that, that is different how, depending on, on the distance of the object from us. So if you look at the mountains, it will be a certain number of milliseconds. And if we look at, uh, at, at the teacup in front of us, it will be less. And we must always re also remember that when the photons contact uh, the eye, uh, there is still a certain, there are still milliseconds of neural activity before the experience takes place. So once you have established that any experience is spread across time, as if you like, is the body here, uh, the world there, uh, once you've done that, is, it, is, is there any major obstacle to saying, but if it can be spread for a millisecond here and 10 milliseconds there and 10 seconds there and eight minutes to the sun and 100 years to this star, is there any reason why, uh, why experience cannot be, cannot be spread out uh, in, in the way that when I dream something, uh, my contact with the with, with the object is no different from the contact than when I actually when I was present physically with it. Yeah. So, so if I can add a, a, just a follow up. Think about please. these two completely different models. On the one side, we have the traditional model of dreams, according to which when we sleep, for some completely unknown reasons. Uh, our brain start to uh, uh, project a, a world uh, made of images, of sounds, and an inner world that apparently has no clear goal in itself. But the brain does all that activity for some unknown reasons, in a completely mysterious way. And now let's consider a completely different model, the, the model that is suggested by the spread mind. According to this model, our brain is an object in a flow of uh, uh, space-time events. These events are spread across all our life. So some of them are very close to the brain, both in space and in time, and some of them are farther away. But they're all uh, taking place relative to the brain. Some of those events took place many years ago, a few months ago, a few hours ago. But it is a huge flow of events. And we call just the last part of this flow the present in our everyday language. And only the events inside that uh, final section, perception. And we call all the rest of this huge flow, huge river of events, we call it either memory or dreams or hallucination. And when we don't uh, focus 
our experience on the last part of the flow, as it happens in everyday life, we can still perceive the whole flow of events. And that happens, for example, when we, our body is having a rest and we are not pressed by what's going on in the proximal surrounding of our body and all our life, in a way, is still impinging on our brain. And that kind of delayed perception is what we usually call dreams. What's easier? What, what's more <laughs> economical? It took, me, it took me months to get my mind around this, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, and I think it will, me too. You know, I think of like a, a real-life example of standing next to a train going by, and I can, I can hear the, the, noise, the uh, siren of the train. I can hear the wheels screeching against the tracks. I can feel the sunlight hitting my face. I can smell the diesel. I can feel the ground shake. And those are all objects creating a, a conscious image or experience that, that are all spread over time and distance. But somehow my brain seems to, to package them all together into one experience that, that feels like it's happening right now. Well, it, yeah, uh, they're, they're all in slightly different time positions, obviously, because we know that sound travels at a different time from the visual. But they're not creating an image uh, for you your body's just allowing them to happen and their happening is, is your experience. Let, let me go back for one second on, on, the, on the dream business. Mm -hmm. we, we have 85 billion neurons with, with uh, trillions upon trillions of, of connections. Let's imagine that for proximate experience where we need to be in contact with the world and able to react to opportunities and dangers let's imagine that we have a very direct passage uh, a very direct uh, exchange uh, between uh, our, our sense perceptions our, our brain and the world but let's imagine that there are infinite eddies backwaters uh, places uh, where the same uh, the same neuronal activity can, as it were, go around for, forever, if you like, uh, ticking over. And then, as Ricardo says, when we, when we go to bed to sleep and we no longer need to be in contact with that proximate world, uh, there, there are a lot of things that can come out and, and start playing again, you know? Uh, and, mm -hmm. and I think that, that kind of does make it possible to start thinking about, about dreams in this way. Not things that are stored, but experience still going on. And, and what do you mean by experience still going on? So one, once an object... Experience still going you know, on would be a dream. All kinds of it, old experiences may be mingling together, no? Uh, dreams are very rarely uh, a straight reenactment of the world, but they're, they're never anything totally new. Um, you, may, you may have a bit of one person attached to another person, or you may have an angel's wings on a donkey, but, but you're never going to have anything that never, nobody's ever seen or heard of before. Uh, you know, this is something that, that Descartes had, had observed, that, that in dreams, but also in the imagination, whenever we 
whenever we try, for example, the imagination to imagine a monster, we're basically putting together bits of, of other animals. And, and that's, you know, dreams, dreams are an amalgam of old experience. They're not a new, a new color, a new sound, a new perception. And the same thing goes with creativity and inspiration. So when you write a new, a new story or a, a new part of a story or a character or a setting in a novel, um, that creative inspiration may feel brand new to you, but when you really start looking at it, it is just combinations of objects that are, that are already there. Let's not say just combinations. Are Let's so not say exciting. that. I actually don't <laughs> like that word. Let's not say that. Yeah, the imagination, the imagination is, is, is precisely form. You know, uh, everybody knows that art is form and form is, is rearrangement and, and, and that's imagination. But the material is always the same as, as we know. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, Ricardo, did you want to add to that? Yeah, no, just about combination. Think about natural evolution and DNA. I mean, all, all animals, all living organisms have been created just through combination. So combination is a big, uh, <laughs> a big yeah. power. I mean, it's not a little uh, thing. Right, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to minimize that with the word just. I will throw that out. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it bothers me when I go to a restaurant with my wife and they say, just two? I said, what do you mean just two? We're the best two. <laughs> exactly. Good, good example. Yes. So um, can, I, can I say so, how, interest, how interesting it is that, one, that it was quite natural for you to use the word just? And you naturally use the word just because we like to imagine that we create things ex novo. That is, in, in, in our, all our standard positions about consciousness and about the imagination and so on, there's an awful lot of wishful thinking about the special status of, of, the, human, of the human race, you know, that, mm -hmm. that makes us feel better about, about the sometimes miserable business of existence. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And it, it is easy, and it did roll right off my tongue. Um. I want to ask one more, and this is going to be kind of one of those far out questions I alluded to, but before I get to the wrap up, the wrap up questions, I wanted to, to ask this because if you guys may or may not know, I talk to different people in different points of view when it comes to consciousness. I mean, everything from philosophy to neuroscience and even some religion with Buddhism, um, near death experiences. And one thing that I hear people talk about is the brain is like a radio receiver and that there is a, a universal consciousness out there that is the essentially the transmitter and it transmits in your brain tunes into that greater consciousness and i was reminded of this concept because i think tim i was watching a, a video interview that you were you were having and somebody i think they asked you something like you know does, does consciousness from objects just kind of float through the air to the brain and when they asked that question, I thought, well, that's, that's too simple and it implies physics. It implies something that we can look at. But then I thought about these other philosophers and people who had brought up this notion that there is a universal consciousness out there that your brain tunes into. And some of them will talk about altered states of consciousness that maybe open your mind to more of that consciousness. Have the two of you ever you know, after a couple glasses of wine or something, kind of <laughs> gone far out there and said, you know, the, the consciousness that comes from these objects, 
instead of pointing like a vector straight into my brain, is it actually going through a medium that might be considered something like a cosmic or a universal consciousness? So have you guys explored that notion at all, or is that too far out there? Well, no, absolutely not. I mean, I would totally disagree with the notion of uh, universal consciousness. At least uh, this is not uh, I've ever experienced. My ex personal experience of the world has always been limited to my uh, surroundings and not much yeah. else. And um, and I would also disagree with the notion that consciousness goes from the object to the uh, brain, or that the brain is a receiver of consciousness, because that would suggest, once again, the notion that uh, consciousness is something over and above and different from the physical world. While uh, um, our goal, my goal, is that of uh, suggesting an explanation of consciousness that does not need to add anything special ingredient to the natural world. So uh, we would not say in, in the spread mind that uh, consciousness goes from objects to the brain. We would just say that uh, uh, consciousness is identical with the objects and that the brain is the one of the physical conditions that allow the existence of, the, um, of such objects. Yeah. Could I, could and it's the whole body. Say, it's the whole body just, that facilitates this consciousness. Is that? Yeah. Can I just say that we we need to put a little a little bit of pressure on this word consciousness and decide what we want to do with it, because I think the way it's often used, there's a suggestion that it's some kind of ethereal, mystical, mental substance. Okay. Now and and then you get and then you get a philosopher like Daniel Dennett coming along and trying to describe the world really really without needing to use the word consciousness and then everybody says well you know he's a consciousness denier we all know that we have this this mental world mm. I think what Ricardo's trying to do here is not to deny consciousness but to say consciousness what we have come to call consciousness and we've needed to invent that word because we think it's in our head whereas whereas the world we're perceiving is clearly out there uh let, why don't we make this world word consciousness simply identical with that with that outer uh world which our body meets uh and and which we allow to happen we've just said we could create a situation where two people are looking at a white piece of paper and because they've previously looked at different different colors when they come to that white piece of paper i see blue green and you see red okay for example okay so that that white piece of paper which is white for normal circumstances of our body is different at different it hasn't for different circumstances of our body it has no absolute yeah. existence uh, and our consciousness is the body as it is now meeting meeting that world. Uh, I don't know if I've made that clearer or just just made it made it harder work. And, no, uh, you did. No, that that actually was helpful. And, and as you were saying it, I thought, okay, this is starting to come together for me. So after two hours of talking to Ricardo, I'm just yeah. now starting to starting to to possibly understand this. There and there is there is a bit of it that um, you know as as it starts to be clear. That uh, well, Ricardo, it feels and I often, very... Ricardo and I often say that, you know, if Ricardo could spend about 200 hours 
with each major influential person on the planet. After, <laughs> after about 10 years, uh, everybody would start to begin to understand what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah it, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it feels so simple and so difficult to understand or to, to take in into fully integrated. Let, let, let me give you another example, which is again an example that, that Ricardo suggested, but I think, think that helps a lot. Uh, because what, we're, what mm -hmm. we're trying to have people imagine is that the world they experience is not an absolute world, but a different world, whatever different body, whether it be a you or a dog or a bat or your friend, comes to it. Uh, but you can experience this with your, with your own body. If, if you put... Uh, a hand in your pocket and, and there's a coin and you feel it, there's a whole range of physical experience which comes into existence with touch. Uh, if you take the coin out of the pocket and, and look at it, uh, there's a physical experience that wasn't available when it was in the pocket and, and, and now is, is different and completely different from touch. So uh, every way we come to the world, it, it comes into existence differently and, and that's what we call consciousness. I like it. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Um, so as a, as a kind of a wrap up, you know, here, are you guys, are you still having these conversations? Are, are there going to be, are you going to publish more of these and, or what other topics do you guys explore that we might hear about? I mean, uh, of course we keep having this conversation and uh, the, the previous uh, conversation uh, required many years. To, to, to be carried along and uh, only now we, we got the, the book so I think we will need some more years in order to have another right. uh, output like that. I'm, I'm rather yeah, terrified by the, the idea of covering, <laughs> covering a lot more territory because we did cover an awful amount of territory in this book. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Ricardo has been has been doing a lot of work now on the whole concept of, of information uh, and has been throwing a, a, some, some totally fascinating ideas at me, which again, uh, I've been struggling to get my mind around. So, so maybe one day we'll, we'll talk a bit more. We do talk a little bit about information in the book, but, but um, that, that's something we're talking about with, with, with excitement now. Yeah, I can see that information in and memories. There were a few few things you guys dove into that I, I would love to hear you guys talk more about. Um, looking at, looking to the future of our understanding of consciousness, and, and not just your explorations, but other things you see out there in the world. You know, is there anything out there that you see that you're excited uh, excited about? Any breakthroughs or discoveries or advancements in in our understanding of consciousness? Anything you guys have seen out there in the in the world? Well, yes, there is one thing that I think it would be very important in, in, in the future, namely the fact that uh, in the last three, four hundred years, we have been asked to believe in the objective world as dictated by science. And basically what science did was to suggest that there was an objective world and uh, everything else was uh, uh, cast into the dustbin of the mind into the dustbin of subjective experience. So we had this picture of the world in which there is just uh, one truth, and that truth is the only possible truth, and it is revealed by science, and all our 
personal experiences, individual worlds were just downgraded to subjective inner worlds. I think that one of the goals of, of the spread mind is to suggest a different worldview in which everyone is living in a world which is not just a mental world, is a real world, is a relative world. And it is not any worse than the world that is discovered by science. It is maybe smaller, it is maybe limited to a, 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 a smaller set of events, but it is just as real. So one of the points of the spread mind that I would like to exploit in the future and to explore is to see how our life changes when we stop thinking that our world is a subjective inner uh, uh, domain and rather to consider a completely different option, namely that we are all kind of uh, um, world um, creators, but worlds that are real, worlds that are made of real stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah well, and as I, I as I listen to that, I start to get excited and nervous. So I think there's definitely <laughs> some power power in knowing that uh, there's something outside of this one hard objective perspective that we've been handed over the last three or four hundred years. I think I think one of the things that got me most excited about Ricardo's uh, ideas is that they are profoundly anti-authoritarian. And uh, they mm. well describe many uh, experiences uh, that, that you can move over in, into the world of books and, and, and literature as well. For example, very simply, uh, everybody comes to a book and, and has a different experience, uh, partly because when they read it, they may be paying more attention at different moments, partly because word, this word or that word may mean something slightly different to them, partly because they bring different experience to it. And we normally talk about that as, as subjective, as if, as if it was somehow uh, whimsical or a caprice, you know, I decided to like this or I decided not to like this. But that's not, not actually our experience of books. When we go to a book and dislike it, we can't kind of decide to like it or not to like it. We bring our world to it and, and the book happens uh, as is possible for our world. Uh, if somebody changes our world or over the years our, our world changes, we come back to the book and, and maybe it's different. But in any event, as far as new things uh, is concerned, uh, I'm a very lucky guy in that Ricardo, he, who is keeping an eagle's eye on developments in, in neuroscience and, and philosophy, uh, is constantly emailing me uh, interesting articles about this or that development. So I'm kind of, I, I just have almost too much to read um, about all kinds of intriguing uh, experiments going on. Wonderful. Well, great. Is there, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else you guys wanted to make sure and, and get out there? I'm fine. I think, I think we've, we've covered a lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, if you get editing, I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, um, Ricardo, so nice to, to talk to you and learn from you again. And, and Tim, it was great to, to have you on and, and get to know you. And I really appreciate both you and your time and your contributions to all of this. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. It's been great. I love it. That concludes another edition of the consciousness podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast 
at our Twitter handle, at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.